You know, I was thinking, David, um, for a lot of the folks here, we could have just played those as if they were new songs and not told them they were from a former generation. <laughs> They'd have never known. Maybe. <laughs> we could have just snuck it in on them. Where'd you hear that music? Oh, I'm just a new song. Just came out, and we were uh, at rehearsal on Wednesday night. Uh, we were discussing, and, and actually David looked up the actual copyright dates on all those songs, and, and our drummer this morning wasn't born yet when any of them were out. <laughs> Not a single one of them. Uh, uh, so that's kind of funny if you think about it. Um, or maybe not, depending on how you think about it, I guess. It depends on our age, I suppose. So, so yes, uh, exciting, exciting morning for all of us. Um, before we dive in to God's Word, would you do go with me? Uh, I want to, I, I need sometimes to kind of regain my focus a little bit. I've been a bit distracted this morning doing all kinds of other things. And so if you would bear with me, uh, can we go before God and pray this morning before we, we open his word? Father God, um, relax my mind. Father, help me focus, as we all should, on your word at this time. Father, there's a tremendous challenge awaiting us. It's here now. It's awaiting our response as the church. Father, how will we respond as these days continue on and our world continues into a source of depravity we've never seen before? How will we respond? How will we show your love? How will we carry your banner in this lost world so that people will come to you. It is a great challenge, but Father, you've already overcome the challenge. We just got to step up. We love you. Amen. That's weird. That was weird. Why did I do that? I don't know. I'm... Hi, people online. Just want to talk right to you this morning, just for a moment. Ignore the people in the room. They could hear me. You were wondering what's going on. All I can say is I'm sorry. All right, back to you guys. Um, always wanted to do that. That's so funny. Anyway, it's all good. So what, whatever. Um, yeah. Was, was, it, was it because of their proximity to Jesus? Was it because of the miracles they were performing? Was that why everyone hated 
them? Was it because of the help they were offering to those in need? Was it because of the kindness and the love that they were showing to all of these people? No. No, actually, that wasn't why they were hated. They were hated because of the second half of the verse that I just read. I didn't read that second half yet. It goes on to say, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see, the disciples stood firm in what they were teaching. They would not back down from the truth that they were teaching. So as a result, the movement of Christ died off, right? I mean, it slowly faded into the annals of history, right? No, absolutely not. Here we are 2,000 years later. Billions, yes, with a B, billions of souls have been saved and continue to be saved since the time of Christ from an eternity apart from God and apart from that gospel truth. See, we, we gotta continue on with that message. Jesus is still spreading, his word is still spreading like wildfire everywhere that the truth is preached. The world will tell us to water it down. It will tell us to include all kinds of other teachings. It will tell the church that in order for you to exist, you have to approve of the sinful lifestyles that God's word very, very clearly condemns. To admit there's no possible way Jesus could be the only way to heaven. You see, the world, though, has this problem. It's wrong. That's all. The world will actually change the name here. His name is Satan. He's in charge of some of this. He wants the truth to be changed. Now, for those of you that never liked English class, didn't like grammar, didn't like all those kinds of things, I want to introduce you to something. It's a quick lesson about the word truth. If the truth is changed, then what is it? A lie. Yeah, that's all. A lie, in this case, written by the father of lies. Do you remember the words of Jesus from John 8, 44? You belong to your father, the devil, who wants you to carry out your father's desires. He's a murderer from the beginning, not holding on to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Peter wrote to tell his readers and us today that the world is going to reject the truth. Get used to it. It's nothing new. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a royal holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it says in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a precious and chosen cornerstone, and And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter is quoting Isaiah 28, 16. He goes on. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter is quoting Psalm 118, 22, the words of David. And verse 8. And a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Peter is quoting Isaiah 8, 14. He had a mastery of these Old Testament ideals And he's reminding us that that truth way back 700 years ago in the time of Isaiah was just as true after Jesus' ascension, and it's just as true in 2023. People stumble because they don't obey the words. We look around us. We see see people stumbling both in the church and outside of her. 
So many people look at the gospel and the teachings of Jesus as foolishness. You see, they're being led astray. They're being deceived into an eternity apart from God. I've got a reminder for folks. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe in eternity, folks. It doesn't matter. There is one, and you will face one option or the other. There's just that one choice. Others, of course, around us continue to try to twist those words of Jesus however they can to fit into our cultural narratives today. We can't do that. We must stand for the truth. We must share the truth, though, in love, just as Jesus did. Here's the problem, the word love. Another word that has been completely redefined by our modern man. And now the only thing the word love means is something that fulfills who? Me. That's it. That's all that matters. Something that makes me feel good. Something that I desire. When Jesus tells us that the greatest love that a man could have is to lay down your own life for someone else. And your life could be your physical life, but it also could be your desires, your feelings. And he demonstrated that for us. He demonstrated his love by laying down his own physical life for all of humanity. Now, one problem that some believers do have is that, that we use this truth as an excuse to be offensive. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Our message, the truth that we're sharing, will be offensive to some on its own. So we don't need to add to that. We have to be different. We have to deliver that message of truth in love, just like Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. No matter how hard we try, though, the cross, the teachings of Jesus will always create problems for some people. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and we'll spend a majority of our time in the first half of the message in this passage, although we're going to flip out of it for a little bit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn there and then keep your finger because we're going to be going to a few other places and then back here to finish in a little bit. For the message of the cross is foolishness, 1 Corinthians 1.18, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. Where is the wise person? Verse 20. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I'm going to repeat that. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Pause. Think about that right now. Think about the wisdom of the world right now. Think about the ideas, the philosophies, the social constructs, the theories that are being forced on the people by those in positions of power and influence. Is there a better way to describe those teachings than foolish? If you have any common sense at all, you can look at it and go, what? This makes no sense. It is absolute foolishness as perfectly described here by Paul. It's exactly what God is doing. It's so absurd. And yet what do humans do? We just believe it. And your friends and your neighbors just believe it. Well, the science says it. It must be true. The research says it. It must be true. No, not necessarily. Not at all because it's foolishness. But don't lose sight because this is what the church does wrong. 
Don't lose sight of who's behind this foolishness. These things being mandated on humanity. Oh, we love to blame, don't we? The government, politicians, the powers that own social media. It's not the schools, it's not the teachers or the school boards. Now, all of these might be assisting in spreading these lies, but the source is still the same, and his name is still Satan. He alone is behind every movement, every law, every societal change to embrace sin and turn away from God. Church, we can never, ever forget that. He alone is still our enemy. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, remember our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter describes this enemy so well, 1 Peter 5, 8, again, a very famous passage. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Church, maybe some of you have have been nibbled on a little bit by that roaring lion in your life. Probably there's some people in here that have been all out in his jaws, about to be devoured, but now you're free. You are indeed. If you're not, guess what? You can be. As a matter of fact, you can be today. Come to Jesus, the Savior of our souls, and experience that freedom. Then take a look around at the other people you know. How many people do you know that are being chased by Satan right now? They're running for their life. How many people do you know right now that are being or have been devoured by Satan? Their mind has been so corrupted by the things of this world that they are just hook, line, and sinker, have fallen for it. Sin has taken over. They have lost control. See, there's still something that can set those people free, even from the mouth of the hungry lion, and his name is Jesus. John 8, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Church, this is important. This is why people in the church fall for the lies of the world. How will we know the truth? We will only know the truth if we hold to his teachings. If we do not hold to his teachings, we will fall for the lies of the world. We can't change the truth. If we change the truth, it's a lie. From the same source as every other lie, the father of lies. Then they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. This is Jesus speaking. He, he was never, we've never been slaves of anyone. So how, how can we be set free? Let me translate that for you. But I'm an American. I'm free. It's right there. And that, that document that seems like a lot of people in power don't know very well. If you follow the news, you know what I'm talking about. I'm an American. I'm not a slave to anyone. If Jesus were here today, he would give you the exact same answer he gave those people replying on that day. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, ah, you will be free indeed. Peter continues on after telling us what Satan is doing. 1 Peter 5, 9 
So church, we must resist him, that roaring lion. We must resist him. We must stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. We are not alone in this fight. We are not alone being chased by the devil. It's happening everywhere. We have to simply stand firm in the truth. Now we're going back to 1 Corinthians where we began to finish Paul's thoughts. Verse 21 is where we're at, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For since the wisdom of God in the world through its wisdom did not know him. Has there ever been a more realistic true statement than that regarding the wisdom of the world? The wisdom of the world arises in today's culture from a godless people, from a godless perspective. There are no teachings of Jesus present in those people's individual lives to influence the creation of this worldly wisdom. And so what do we have? The mess that we've made for ourselves. But Paul's words are what's most important. So what do we do about it? Complain, whine, moan? No. What do we do? We preach Christ crucified. That's what we do. Absolutely. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the world. Yes. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is uh, stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. And that is our righteousness. That is our holiness. That is our source of redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Transformational churches focus on the good news of Jesus and how that news changes everything. Remember, we'll focus on Jesus and people in that order. Now, if any of you happen to catch the title as we threw it up there and as David put it out there for you throughout the week, the title of today's message is The Transformational Church Changes. Yes, that is the title. But pastor, all we've talked about is how the church shouldn't change. Uh Uh-huh, that's correct. Yes, the transformational church must never, ever change the gospel message. We may never change the truth of the cross of Christ. We may never change his birth, his death, his resurrection, or the truth of his imminent return. We cannot change the teachings of Jesus. We cannot hide the truths that they contain. We must do all of this while loving people the same way Jesus loved them, embracing them as they come to Jesus, seeking the freedom that only he can provide. We then must use whatever opportunities God provides us to seek and save the lost, even if it's not the way we've done it before. If you didn't know, those are the most often repeated words of any dying church. 
We've never done it that way before. We will never change the message, but the methods should always be refined, improved, removed if necessary, and completely reinvented when necessary. But here's the awesome part. Transformational churches will actually embrace change rather than fear it. Why? Why? Because of the reason behind the change. We are called to persuade others to Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.11. We are called to reach people in whatever creative ways we can reach people. How can we better offer the love of Jesus to the people around us? How can we better equip the family of God that he has brought to us? How can we present the never-changing truth of God to the current world in a way that will draw them toward him? What can we do to show the world how much he cares for them? How much love can we possibly show them? How much patience can we have with the people around us? How many resources are we willing to invest trying to share the gospel of Christ? Let me answer all those questions for you. First of all, we cannot out-care God we cannot have more patience than our God. We certainly cannot outgive our God. So that would mean, let me translate, we can't care too much. We can't love too much. We can't have too much patience. And we cannot give too much toward the cause of seeking and saving the lost. Now, I know this is not an American ideal. This is not a capitalistic concept because here's the problem, we're not concerned with an earthly return on our investment. We are living in God's time, we are living on God's earth, and we are using God's resources as believers. We're all part of God's economy, so our investments are going toward an eternal future. Our investments will never, ever, ever lose value. We are called to invest in the salvation of souls, and not everyone will respond. But this should not defeat us. No, in fact, actually, it should do the opposite. It should inspire us to invest more. Remember, Jesus tells us that there'll be more rejoicing over just one sinner who comes home than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent Here's the reality. We may never, ever see the result of our investments this side of eternity. But I know we're Americans. We want results now. Some of you know this. Heart change takes time. It doesn't happen like that for most people. So what are we doing? Well, that illustration from Scripture is very true. We're planting a seed. That's all we can do. We might be the device that God uses to water that seed. We might be the device that God uses to fertilize that seed. You know what? There might be people along the way that we get a chance to minister to for a very short period of time, and that's okay. And that's okay because God is at work, and it is his work that we seek to do. He alone is responsible for any growth that takes place. He is responsible for the growth that takes place in the heart, in the mind, in the life of all of those we get the honor and the privilege of sharing Jesus with. Have you thought of it that way? The privilege 
that you have to share Jesus, the honor that it is that he has entrusted to you, his people, to share his message of hope and salvation to this lost and dying world? Have you ever thought about what an honor that is, how precious that responsibility is? His message is incredible, and he's given us, you and me, in our feeble minds, to, to come up with the best possible ways we can to share that message in this place, this community, where he has brought us. Something you may or may not know about me, and the staff can attest to it, nearly every day, and I come in, the first place I come is here. I walk into this room, and I look at that white cross above my head right now. Some of you probably didn't even know that was there. And I often will remind God that uh, I still can't believe that I'm here doing this with you. I need to get over that because he's put me here. But I still, in my mind, I still wrestle with that because I'm just a kid that grew up in the county next door who went to church his whole life, who went to church camp one time and and vowed never to go back. And I honored that vow for a very, very long time. A kid that didn't want to be two things in life. I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't want to be a preacher. And I have my reasons for both. Don't worry about it. And then a kid who decided after he was married with some coercion from his wife to attend a week of junior high camp as a leader. And God changed my life forever. And he put me in a new direction to pursue him in ministry. He called me out of full-time teaching a few years later into full-time ministry as a youth pastor. He called me to graduate school to to further my education and prepare me for ultimately being your pastor one day. And all I can tell you is it is an honor and a privilege to be your pastor. He's entrusted every one of us with the same good news, with that same message of Jesus and how he saved each one of us. And it's up to us to share that. We want to be a transformational church. We want to be the transformational church that God desires us to be. Just as the Spirit of God transforms your individual heart, mind, and soul, the Spirit of God will transform His bride, the bride of Christ, the church, into what the bridegroom, His name is Jesus, desires. If if and only if we allow the Spirit of God to transform us. Yes, that means to change us. Are we willing to allow God to change us? I told you this is going to keep coming up forever. We will never become who God wants us to be by remaining who we are. So I'm going to use an example to close today from the book of Acts. It's an example of the early church and a change that absolutely had to take place, but were they willing to do it? They didn't change the message of Jesus in any way. We've already covered that. We're not going to do that. And if any of you ask me to do that, I'll leave. I will, because I'm not willing to compromise. I'm just not. But radically change how the early church was doing things. The church had just begun. This is around A.D. 50. So the church at best is 20 years old at this point. Brand new baby church. 
There aren't a lot of established traditions, but here's the thing. You know what? You know how long it takes for us humans to get accustomed to the way we do things and not want to change? Way less than 20 years, I promise you that. There weren't established traditions. So I guess you could say in the early church about everything they did, they probably said, you know what? We've never done it that way before. Because there was no before. This church has been around since 1892. There's a lot of before, all right? So we've had that kind of going against us in some ways. Here's the thing. I can't imagine the conversations that went on in the early church leadership amongst the apostles and the elders and the deacons that were scattered across the Roman Empire trying to figure out how does this work. They didn't have a guidebook, how to run the church, how to organize a church, how to handle the staff. How to, they didn't have any of those things. What we get to do is we get to read. We got to read the answers to the questions they had because they asked Paul. And Paul wrote letters back to the churches answering their questions. And then we wrote books about how to do those things. But there was a moment early on in the church when it was confronted with a huge change. Would they change what they thought they always needed to do and had done or not? It's found in Acts chapter 15. There was a huge theological issue facing the church. Believers were of different opinions regarding these new people, these Gentiles that were part of this. There were those that insisted absolutely that the Gentiles had to first be circumcised, entering into the Jewish faith, and then after that, well, then they could convert to Jesus and pursue him as a Christian. Now, this issue had the potential of not just splitting the church into like two different factions, but pardon the no pun intended here at all, but cutting off the Gentile believers completely. There's only a few of you who got that. That's good. Imagine Paul. He is traveling the Roman Empire. He is preaching, teaching, converting people of every nation to Jesus, not to Judaism. The Jews, who were the first to come to know Jesus, yes, that's true. They were also the ones who killed Jesus, remember? Um, They saw that as wrong. Oh, no, we have to do this first. These new believers have to be Jews first adhere to the law of Moses, and then possibly they could be considered as Christians. This was a serious issue. This was a serious issue. Is the path to Jesus narrow? Be careful how you answer. Is the path to Jesus narrow? Yes, narrow is the road and few will find it. We know that passage. But it's not narrow because Jesus built a small road. It's narrow because it's not the way of the world. Wide is the way of the world, and everyone sees that path. Narrow is that road to Jesus, because it's not the way of the world. So if you choose to find it, here's the problem. That road should not be narrow, because we humans invent rules, invent regulations, invent standards, insert our own opinions, our own traditions, our own obstacles to prevent people from ever coming and finding the path that leads to life. Our doors should be as wide open as God's who wants, I'll remind you, no one to perish. Big door. No one. It's the Spirit's work to draw them to God. It's the Spirit's job to convict them of their sin and open their eyes to the need for a Savior in their life. It is the Spirit's job to save them through Jesus Christ. It is our responsibility to love them. It is our responsibility to show them Jesus's way. Notice I didn't say teach them. Yeah, we teach them. 
We teach them by showing them. We teach them by them experiencing Jesus' love through us. That is how he did it. I would say his model is pretty good. Maybe that's something worth repeating, church. The gospel of Jesus is a divisive issue between the world or Satan and the people and the believer and the church. The gospel of Jesus, on the other hand, is what unites the believers and his church. And the early church had this huge issue before them. Acts tells us that they also had everything in common. Well, now, how could they have this issue and have everything in common? They had everything in common that mattered. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And the church was faced now with this huge change in practice, this huge change in expectations, this huge change in tradition is what this was. Acts 15, 2, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. People were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I can't imagine how Paul just burnt up when people would start preaching that nonsense. Paul, a Jew, raised by Jews, raised in all the Jewish and customs. Paul knew his stuff, but Jesus got a hold of Paul and he showed him the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the love of God in a brand new way through that sacrifice that was made once and for all by Jesus. So to place an artificial barrier in the way of people coming to Jesus must have just set him off. And I'm just guessing Paul had a little bit of a temper at times. Just a hunch. I've read his words. Just saying. When they arrived, verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, I hope you heard that whole thing, that first part. Yes, there were Pharisees who came to Jesus. What? They're the ones that killed Jesus. Why, yes, they were. And there's hints throughout the Gospels that there were Pharisees that were believers, but afraid to come forward because of the consequences to their social lives. So praise God. Some of them found Jesus well done. But what had they done? They brought their traditions along with them to this Gospel teaching. For them, it was, oh yes, we accept Jesus and this is a problem. Church, we can't do that today, just like they couldn't do it then. It's not Jesus and anything. It's Jesus, the end. Jesus alone. Peter spoke up first, of course. He would. You'll watch The Chosen. You'll understand with me. He tells the group that God called him to speak directly to the Gentiles, and God did. He said God knows their heart. He's obviously given them the Holy Spirit as well. So why test God by putting a burden on them that we Jews could not even bear? No! No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, and so are they. Hmm. I think Peter was pretty clear in his opinion on the matter. Then Paul and Barnabas go on to share that everything that God was doing amongst the Gentiles, all the miracles that were being performed, the people that were being saved. Then James spoke up. James, the author of James in your Bibles, yes. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. James, who at one point in his life thought Jesus was a crazy man and went to try to rescue him so that people wouldn't get a hold of him and take him back home. James who had now become one of the most respected leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. 
James goes all the way back to the prophet Amos, and he quotes from Amos chapter 9, reminding the Jews that God promised long ago that they would return from exile, that God would help them rebuild, that God would help them restore the temple, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. Oh, wait a minute. And so James goes on to say, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Church, we should not make it difficult for people to come to God. There are things we as church can do. There are obstacles that we can remove. There are changes that we can make that better help people turn to Jesus. And if we do those things, there is no way that God opposes those changes. Our opposition always comes from within, from our own personal feelings from our own personal opinions. After all, we've never done it that way before. That's no different than what the Pharisees had come to Jesus. Absolutely came to Jesus, but they brought their feelings, they brought their opinions with them to Jesus. The transformational church is going to transform. It's going to change. It will never become what God wants it to be by remaining what it is today. If the research is correct, it tells us that culture changes every three to five years. How does the church reflect that? Should the church even reflect that? Here's what is awesome. Our message never changes, period. It doesn't. The truth we hold on to, the hope that we have in Jesus will never, ever, 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 ever change. We don't have to rewrite a thing. As a matter of fact, Scripture is pretty clear about that. If you do that sin, don't rewrite, rewrite the words of the Bible. Don't add to the words of the Bible. You cannot do it. It is a sin. But we do have to change our methods. We have to know. God has given us intelligence. We have to know the culture and how it's changed around us. And then God gives us the freedom to find the best ways to reach out into that culture to save those people. We have to meet them where they are. Once again, that would be the very thing that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did for us. And I would contend that his strategies are pretty good. Maybe we should look at them a little closer. So church, we got to be willing to change. we got to be willing to change as God calls us to change. Use James as an example. The very person that spoke the decisive words to this group, wrote the letter, signed the letter for Paul and Barnabas to take back to the people. James had to change his own mind first. Remember, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. His change in his mind and heart and soul brought this change that quite honestly brought us to the gospel because we're mostly Gentiles, mostly in this room. His change brought about this huge change in the early church. His willingness to be open-minded and put the ministry and the mission ahead of anyone's personal feelings or upbringings or anything else. This allowed the gospel to spread in even greater ways across the Roman Empire. Change requires an open mind. Is your mind open to changes that are being made to reach more people? Do you, you have to evaluate yourself, have a heart to seek and save the lost? Are you willing to fully jump in and commit to the cross of Christ and the cause of Christ? You see, there's two types of churches primarily in America. There's what are called member-driven churches, and there's what are called mission-driven churches. 
Some churches only focus on the people that are there. They focus on just meeting their needs, their likes, their desires. That's it. The problem with that style is that it doesn't exist in Scripture anywhere. Nowhere is that model ever found. We find that early first century church devoted to one another, devoted to the cause of Christ, the teaching of the apostles, to breaking bread together, to selling their goods and services in order to meet people's needs. Why? So that the gospel could be spread. That was their focus. They had everything that mattered in common. It was key. They all wanted what was best for someone else so that the gospel could spread quite the opposite of that member-driven church, that isolated group today. But churches that are mission-driven realize their primary purpose is accepting and fulfilling the purpose of the church as given by some guy named Jesus, the groom, the bridegroom of the church himself. Congregations that formally declare this and actually put it into practice have very little difficulty with change. Why? Very, very easy for them to affect or implement change in their atmosphere. Why? Because the people all see the bigger picture of trying to seek and save the lost. And they're willing to try things to try to seek and save the lost. The famous Christian author C.S. Lewis put it very simply this way. To be in time, in other words, to exist, is to experience change. I marvel at some folks that I've met in our congregation outside, some folks that are, you know, that octogenarian and older, I marvel at the change that they have seen over the course of their life. I mean, it is just phenomenal what they have witnessed on planet Earth. We can't get away from change. And as the church, we must be willing and able to strategically, that's the key, you got to examine it, you got to wise, you got to know the times and the people to assess the culture and consider how to implement change effectively to reach that culture with the hope of Christ. And we know in the church, change can be dramatic. Change can be painful. Can it not? Absolutely. But it's not for us. It's to save them. <laughs> so that pain, nothing compared to the pain that Christ went through to save you and I. Are we willing to do that? The transformational church changes. If that change has not begun in your life, then today is the day to begin that change. Don't wait another second. Respond that thing inside of you saying, I've never even thought about accepting Christ, but for some reason today I feel like I'm supposed to accept Christ. That's called the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has been working on you for years and years and years, probably maybe for days, maybe for hours, maybe for minutes. That's up to him. But he brought you to this place, to this moment, to this opportunity to change your eternity. That's a big change. Maybe you're one of those people that you've always been in the church, but you have resisted change because of your personal feelings and attachments. Okay, that's fine. It's not too late to repent. To come before God and say, God, I, I don't want to fight against you. Let me help soften my heart to whatever it is you want to do to seek and save the lost. We have everything that matters in common, regardless of your age, your religious background, or lack thereof. We have everything that matters in common. His name is Jesus. Everything else is secondary. 
come today. Let us pray for you. If there's something going on in your life, I know there's people struggling in life right now. We have illness that people are battling. We have people in the hospital right now. We have a brand new baby born that was just born yesterday evening to Tyler and Meredith Maddox. Yes, brand new baby, baby little baby girl. Claire is her name. She's, she's delightful. I've seen her pictures. It's wonderful. Everything possible going on around us. If you just need prayer, come forward. Let our altar team pray with you today. Father God, as we come before you. This prayer is not a transitional prayer. This prayer is not uh, even my words. Father, I want them to be yours. You know. You and you alone know what needs to happen. You know what needs to happen in individuals' lives in this room, individuals watching online, whether it's today live or it's tomorrow or it's next week or in 20 years. You know your spirit is in that person's midst right now telling them how to respond, and we must only answer if it's someone that needs to come to you for the first time Father, pray they allow your spirit to move in that direction. Father, for those of us that, that that's not the decision we need to make, we just need to be completely on board. We need to have everything in common. The most important things in this life all revolve around you and your word and your will for our lives. And so, Father, let us submit ourselves to you and your will fully. Let us, as your bride, submit to to your will fully, whatever that may be. Father, if we're a person, an individual that uh, has resisted that change, maybe in our own life, maybe you've asked me to change and I just haven't been willing. I haven't been willing to give that up, to stop those practices, to quit hanging with that group of people but watching those things that I watch, whatever it is, maybe I've been the one resistant to that change you've been trying to make since we met. Father, move that individual today to change. Father, if I've just been a stick in the mud, I've just been an obstacle in your path, maybe in my family, maybe in my place of employment, maybe even within the church, I've just kind of been in your way. Father, move me today. Move me to change so that your work can be accomplished through me in ways it never has been before. Father, we love you and we await your spirit to move.